Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History, episode 23, The Constitution of 1791. With the Republicans of Paris on the run, in today's episode, we'll be exploring how the newly established Fillon Club consolidated its grip on power in the aftermath of the Tricolor Terror. We'll also be examining the various and in fact crippling flaws of the finished constitution, setting us up for the wild ride that is the Legislative Assembly. However, before we get into it, I do want to state one big apology for being so late on the release of this episode. I am finding the balancing act between podcasting and the equivalent of full-time work a fair bit to handle at the moment, but I will endeavour to make sure that I keep to my bi-weekly release schedule as much as possible going forward. So, without further to do, let us begin. Welcome to Grey History, Episode 23, The Constitution of 1791. There's a quote from the 2008 movie The Dark Knight, which I think sums up the French Revolution brilliantly. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. In 1788, Jean-Joseph Monnier was a hero. Following the Day of Tiles revolt in Grenoble, the then radical defiantly led the Vassil Assembly. From Vassil, Monnier proclaimed that human rights derived not from conventions, but from nature. He demanded the abolition of arbitrary imprisonment, and he called for a boycott of taxes until an estate's general had been summoned. The following year, the 30-year-old led the Dauphine delegates in the early days of the National Assembly, and even proposed the famous tennis court oath on the 20th of June. But by the end of 1789, this once heroic revolutionary was deemed a royalist reactionary in the eyes of the popular press. Having championed both bicameralism and the absolute veto, as well as opposing the Declaration of the Rights of Man, Meunier was now depicted as a mouthpiece for sinister aristocrats. The former hero lived long enough to see himself become the villain. The Comte de Mirabeau charted a similar character arc of progressive-turned-pragmatist shortly thereafter. Tremendously popular with the commons and a great orator as well, Mirabeau was a revolutionary giant. In 1789, Mirabeau famously declared that the National Assembly could only be dispersed by the force of bayonets, and he had previously proclaimed that he was the mad dog that would bite despotism to death. Opposing Meunier, the Count rallied against bicameralism, and he also vigorously supported the nationalisation of church property and championed the Declaration of the Rights of Man. In fact, he was a key author of the historic document. But like Meunier, Mirabeau too became fearful that his life's work would amount to the destruction of France, not its rejuvenation. By the middle of 1790, the noble was in the secret pay of the court, recommending civil war, protecting the émigrés, and actively undermining the radical revolutionaries. Dying in April 1791, Mirabeau was fortunate enough to die a hero, but when his secret schemes were eventually discovered, he too would become a villain. Following the well-trodden path of Mirabeau and Meunier, By the middle of 1791, it was now Antoine Barnev's turn to embrace his inner villain. By the summer of 1791, Barnev and his allies had shed their earlier radical ways 
and sought to bring stability and order to the revolution. Having broken away from the Jacobin Club, Barnev and other members of the newly established Fillon Club sought to end the revolution and begin the process of consolidation. As one conservative journalist put it, the arsonists sought to become firefighters. The question was, could they tame the blaze? Historian Jonathan Israel describes the Fillon coup of July and August 1791 as the constitutional monarchists' last and most vigorous attempt to capture the revolution. In the aftermath of the Cham de Mars massacre and the associated tricolour terror, the triumph of the constitutionalists looked almost complete. In Paris, leading Republicans were on the run. Political clubs ceased their meetings, revolutionary publications were suppressed, their printers smashed to pieces. In the countryside, municipal governments followed the lead of the capital. Non-constitutional priests were imprisoned or intimidated into silence, while nobles with questionable loyalties were driven to emigration. As historian Simon Sharma notes, throughout August and September, the attempts of the constitutionalists to arrest the drift of the revolution towards what they called anarchy seemed to have succeeded. For that success to be lasting, however, the repressive tactics used in the wake of the Cham de Mars massacre could not be permanently pursued. Martial law, which had been declared at the Cham de Mars on the 17th of July, could not be indefinitely maintained. If Barnev and his constitutionalist allies wanted to keep their advantage, if they wanted to consolidate the revolutionary order, they would need to permanently entrench their superior position. And to do that, they turned to the Constitution. With the left in disarray, the Constitutionalists tried to consolidate the power and position of the king and the middle class. Specifically, the Fillon Centre attempted to increase royal power, raise electoral qualifications, introduce a Senate, and abolish rules preventing deputies from being re-elected to the next legislature or from accepting positions in the king's ministry. Now, you may think to yourself that that list of initiatives sounds like a conservative's wet dream. And it was. The tricolour terror was, after all, a reactionary movement. Yet, surprisingly, the efforts of the constitutionalists to consolidate the revolution through significant constitutional changes were frustrated not just by the left, but by the right as well. After initially being disgusted with the king's forced return to Paris, the conservatives of the National Assembly had viewed the events of mid-July with delight. With the disintegration of the Jacobin Club, the Democrats had torn themselves apart, and following the Champ de Mars massacre, the more radical among them had even been suppressed. The right was increasingly convinced that the revolution was unsustainable, and that obstruction would lead to its undoing and the restoration of the king, the church, and the nobility. Thus, the conservatives of the assembly refused to compromise on measures which, ideologically, they should have supported. To make matters worse, and reflecting the lack of political parties as we think of them today, members of the Constitutional Centre also refused to entertain sensible compromises, and some even drifted back to the Jacobin Club. The result was that no significant, no permanent, no stabilising reforms were introduced during the tricolour terror. Those initiatives which did pass, such as the king being empowered to choose the nation's ambassadors, did not fundamentally strengthen the executive, nor constitutional monarchy more broadly. Consequently, the inability of the centre and right to find common ground gave the republicans and populists of the left the respite they so desperately needed. This failure to implement meaningful reforms led historian Heinrich von Siebel to declare the constitutionalists incompetent. Historian Charles Mallet is less harsh, but notes that the constitutionalists wasted a precious opportunity. Had the majority possessed any vigour or cohesion, they might conceivably have stamped out the Jacobin movement and have secured the freedom which they fancied they had won. Instead of that, they threw away their victory. Barnev, Malware, and a few other members of the majority did make an attempt to organise their party, and some idea of an effectual revision of the constitution was entertained. But it ended in nothing. 
the fatal want of union and of practical ability which characterise the party, their lack of definitiveness and insight, their fondness for glib talk and theory, frustrated the idea. Slowly but steadily, Robespierre's influence reasserted itself in the assembly. The Jacobin leaders returned to public life and resumed their tactics unimpeded. The only permanent results of the 17th of July were to widen the breach between the party in power and the party which was still excluded, and to leave in the minds of those who had suffered, and in the great masses of the poor who sympathised with them, abidingly bitter memories of injustice calling for expiation and revenge. The inability for the Assembly's centre and right to work cooperatively crippled the power of the tricolour terror. Instead of permanently curtailing the influence of the clubs and the press, instead of institutionalising reforms that would strengthen the position of the king and the constitutional monarchy, the Assembly's royalists, both centrists and conservative, failed to seize the opportunity presented to them. The consequences of this failure were significant. The lack of reactionary constitutional reform ensured that the new regime would remain on a dangerously unstable, debatably untenable foundation. Referring to the lack of constitutional reforms implemented during the tricolour terror, the conservative leader Malware later lamented the missed opportunity. Only one great mistake was left for us to make, and we did not fail to make it. With no significant changes to the Constitution, by September 1791, the document was finally complete. The fabled Constitution, the Gospel of the Revolution, was ready for the King's acceptance. Unsurprisingly, the King did accept. In reality, the King was in no position to refuse what the Assembly presented to him. To have rejected the document would have been to pass the initiative to the Jacobins, to reinvigorate the nation's Republican left. If Louis, once more the prisoner of Paris, ever wanted to reclaim a mere fraction of his prior power and liberty, then accepting the Constitution was his only real option. He could conspire privately, but publicly he had to conform. Having been presented the document by a deputation of more than 60 deputies, Louis announced on the 13th of September that he would accept the Constitution and do so in person the next day. At the Assembly, he declared, I come to consecrate solemnly here the acceptance I have given to the Constitutional Act. I swear to be faithful to the nation and the law and to employ all the power delegated to me for maintaining the Constitution and carrying its decrees into effect. May this great and memorable epoch be that of the re-establishment of peace and become the gauge of the happiness of the people and the prosperity of the empire. I can't help but wonder what it was like to witness that speech, in particular to hear that last line from the king. May this great and memorable epoch be that of the re-establishment of peace and become the gauge of the happiness of the people and the prosperity of the empire. I want to know just how many people believed the Constitution of 1791 really did herald the re-establishment of peace and prosperity. I want to be able to look into the eyes of the audience, to observe their body language, to witness the expressions of hope or despair on their faces. I want to know how this speech was received, because with the benefit of hindsight, we know that the Constitution of 1791 was a false dawn. It did not re-establish peace. It did not re-establish happiness. And it would take some time to re-establish the prosperity of the empire. Or should I say, establish the prosperity of the Napoleonic Empire. Louis proclaimed this gospel of the revolution on the 14th of September 1791. Exactly one year and one week later, On the 21st of September 1792, 
the French Republic was declared. I can assure you that no peace, nor prosperity, nor happiness can be found in between. Considering the bloody future ahead of us, considering that there will be a constitution of 1791, 1793, 1795, 1799, 1802 and 1804, it is worth analysing the contents of the doomed constitution of 1791, a document that clearly failed to live up to its promises, and a document which, according to historian Nestor Webster, was a mass of contradictions. The centrepiece of the new regime was, of course, the legislature. While the king had existed prior to 1789, a national legislature had not. As previously discussed, the new legislature was to consist of only one chamber. There would be no American Senate nor British House of Lords. Meunier's bicameralism efforts had been defeated back in September 1789, and Barnev's recent push for a Senate had also failed to yield results. Consisting of 745 deputies, the legislature would be elected every two years. But don't let the word elected mislead you. The word democratic, particularly in the modern sense of the word, would also be misleading. Not only were women denied the right to vote, but the distinction between active and passive citizens denied many men the right to vote as well. Furthermore, active citizens didn't vote for deputies, they voted for electors, and the electors voted for deputies. Thus, this two-staged electoral process, and the limited franchise that powered it, is a significant deviation from many modern democratic norms in the Western world today. France was undeniably more democratic than most of Europe at this point in time, but today such a system would be labelled undemocratic. The key power the legislature had was taxation. Like Congress in America or the House of Commons in the UK, the French legislature controlled the purse. Taxation reform was a key catalyst for the revolution, and so unsurprisingly, the Assembly conveyed upon itself all powers relating to taxation. This was a significant prerogative and gave the legislature considerable influence over the executive branch of the Constitution, aka the King. Given the Assembly's control over revenue and expenditure, you might ask what significant power the King was given. And that's where things start to become interesting. Unsurprisingly, for a document codifying a constitutional monarchy, the position of the King was everywhere in the Constitution of 1791. If you were speed-reading the document, you might be forgiven for thinking that King Louis and his successors had been bestowed considerable power. But when you get into the details, it becomes clear that in reality, the power of the executive was severely limited. As an example, let's take the king's official position as the head of the armed forces. Taken at face value, you would consider this to be a considerable prerogative, just like the assembly's power over taxation. But get into the details and you soon discover that titles can be rather misleading. Not quite as misleading as North Korea's official title as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, but misleading nonetheless. The king, despite being the head of the armed forces, could neither declare war nor conclude peace. He could recommend those actions to the assembly, but it was the legislature who voted to both commence hostilities and to end them. Furthermore, the king, despite being the head of the armed forces, possessed limited power to determine their composition. He was entitled to choose his marshals and his admirals, but as soon as you work your way down the chain of command, his influence became more constrained and eventually non-existent. The king could not freely promote this captain or demote that colonel. Despite his position, the monarch's direct control over the officer corps was relegated only to the most senior positions of the armed forces. If you take the navy, for example, the king could nominate his admirals, but only two-thirds of his vice-admirals, half of his captains, and one-sixth of his lieutenants. In essence, Louis was a CEO who couldn't choose his workers, or a coach who couldn't choose his players. Finally, the king could give orders to neither the National Guard nor the regular troops. The assembly put the latter under the command of the local municipalities, 
completely divorcing the king from his soldiers. The king was thus a commander who couldn't issue a command. In short, the head of the armed forces couldn't declare war, couldn't conclude peace, couldn't even give orders. Furthermore, he was severely limited when it came to deciding who was and was not in his officer corps. From the surface, the king appeared to have power, but in reality, his title was misleading to say the least. A similar dynamic played out with a range of government officials. Many senior governmental posts were elected. Judges were elected, bishops were elected, tax collectors were elected. These men performed their duties in the name of the king, but the king didn't select them for the job. The people did. And of course by the people I mean the subset of the people known as active citizens. Now, despite conducting their duties in the name of the king, the king couldn't fire any of these individuals for transgressions. At best, he could suspend them, but the legislature could overrule the executive and reinstate suspended officials. Once more, there was a gulf between the power the king seemed to possess and the power he actually wielded. One considerable prerogative the king did enjoy was the veto. In theory, both the legislative and executive branches of the constitution held enough power to prevent the other branch from becoming tyrannical. The legislature restrained the executive through its power of taxation, and the executive restrained the legislature through its power of the veto. Through these prerogatives, both institutions supposedly had the means to prevent the other from going rogue. However, theory and practice often diverge. As discussed previously, the king's veto was suspensive. It was not absolute. While the assembly's power over taxation was absolute, the king did not have the absolute power of the veto. The king could only temporarily block legislation, and if two subsequent legislatures overruled him, the law would pass. What this meant was that the branches were unequal. Furthermore, unlike the British system, the king couldn't dissolve the assembly and call for fresh elections. This meant that a controversy would remain controversial for, hypothetically, quite some time, up to three to four years. Now, it's here that the suspensive veto, in the form that it was given to the king, reveals itself to be insufficient. I would argue it was enough to irritate the assembly, enough to impede the assembly, but not enough to give the king substantial power, power that could actually be used as a true counterbalance against the legislature. To be clear, I'm not saying that the deputies were wrong to deny the king an absolute veto. The absolute veto was repulsive not only to many deputies, but many members of the public as well. The idea was impractical not just because so many deputies hesitated to embrace it, but also because of the uniformed opposition of the press. The king could only ever hope for a limited veto, but the veto he received was missing some key features to make it functional. Specifically, instead of having the debate drag on for years and wait for future legislatures to overrule the king, the king should have been empowered to dissolve the legislature, call fresh elections, and let the people, the source of the nation's sovereignty, choose between the two. Alternatively, if you wanted to adopt the American system over the British, a supermajority of the legislature could have overruled the king, just like how the US Congress can overrule the president's veto with a two-thirds majority in each chamber. By depriving the king of the ability to dissolve the legislature, the deputies deprived the constitution of a mechanism to resolve disputes quickly. This had significant consequences because it meant that the suspensive veto merely created protracted and polarising political debates. And as deadlock reigned, the king could be vilified by his adversaries for blocking the will of the people. This is important because the moment King Louis XVI's use of the veto was seen to be preventing rather than upholding the will of the people, the king and the constitution were condemned vigorously by their enemies, and the king had no way to stop the onslaught other than to capitulate. Through the power of taxation, the assembly could control the king and the army. But through the limited veto, in the suspensive form it was created, 
the king could merely slow the assembly's agenda. He could not truly counterbalance it. These limitations on the executive branch bring us to the first of the three key reasons that historians often point to when discussing the failure of the Constitution of 1791. Before we begin, however, it is important to note that this list is not exhaustive, that many historians don't necessarily agree with all three points we're about to discuss, and that when they do, they may differ in emphasising a specific reason over another. History is grey after all. So, key reason number one that some historians point to for the demise of the Constitution of 1791 is the aforementioned limitations on the king's powers. Historian Ippolite Tain assailed the Constitution and declared that executive power was not merely insufficient, but was deliberately destroyed by the deputies of the National Assembly. As a result, Tain decried the Constitution as a document which made the legislature a master and the executive a clerk. The king, supreme head of the general administration, of the army, of the navy, guardian of public peace and order, hereditary representative of the nation, is without the means, in spite of his lofty titles, of directly applying his pretended powers, of causing a schedule of assessments to be drawn up in a refractionary commune, of compelling payment by a delinquent taxpayer, of enforcing the free circulation of a convoy of grain, of executing the judgment of a court, of suppressing an outbreak, or of securing protection to persons and property. For he can bring no constraint to bear on the agents who are declared to be subordinate to him. He has no resources but those of warning and persuasion. In short, Taine criticised the Constitution for granting the king titles but not powers. This, Taine argued, was a fundamental flaw in the Constitution and helped to make the new regime untenable. The contemporary writer, Etienne Dumont, possessed a similar point of view. Dumont detailed what he perceived to be a lack of real royal power, and like many historians since, criticised the document for being neither republican nor monarchic, but an unworkable mixture of the two. The constitution was a veritable monster. There was too much of monarchy in it for a republic, and too much of a republic for a monarchy. The king was a side dish, an appetizer, everywhere present in appearance, but without any actual power. A constitutional monarchy with the king as a side dish. Oh, how far Bourbon absolutism had fallen. Before we move on to the second key reason historians often point to when discussing the failure of the constitution, it is worth noting that, unsurprisingly, there are those who do not criticise the constitution for possessing a lack of executive power. In fact, some praise it. The American revolutionary Thomas Paine, for example, argued that the king's subordinate nature to the legislature was not a flaw in the constitution, but the result of deliberate and sensible design. Paine, who spent much of the early 1790s in France, argued that placing the legislature above the executive was in the natural order of things, because laws must have existence before they can have execution. Historian Adolf Thiers also defended the constitution of 1791, but takes a different angle. Thiers, both a prime minister and a president of France in the 19th century, dismissed the idea that the king possessed insufficient power. Instead, he argued that the constitution's Achilles heel was that it was acceptable to neither royalists nor democrats. Building on the theme that Dumont articulated, that there was too much monarchy for a republic and too much republic for a monarchy, Thiers argued that it was unrealistic to expect both the king and the people to accept the constraints of the new order, and that the result was an embattled constitution with enemies on both the left and the right. Its error here was not in reducing royalty to simple magistrature, for the king still had sufficient power to maintain the laws 
and more than magistrates can be said to possess in a republic. But in believing that a king, with the recollection of what had been, could submit to such a reduction of authority, and that a people, just awakened and who had recovered a great portion of public power, could be content without the acquisition of the whole. As it relates to Thiers' first statement, that the king had sufficient power to maintain the laws, I find myself in disagreement. For the reasons discussed earlier, and highlighted by historian Ippolite Tain, I do think that the Constitution of 1791 created an unworkable system, one which attempted to create a balance of powers superficially, but in reality left the executive too little power to ensure a workable and effective regime. However, the foundations of a house are one thing, but poor foundations aren't necessarily crippling if they can be improved over time, so long as the house doesn't have to immediately weather a revolutionary storm. Thiers' second point alludes to that brewing storm, and represents the second common reason historians often point to when detailing the document's failure. Thiers argued that error of the constitution was in believing that the king could accept his reduction in authority, and that the people would be content without complete authority. The constitution was, after all, as historian Nestor Webster describes, a mass of contradictions. As a result of these contradictions, the document was neither democratic nor autocratic, neither republican nor monarchic, and thus acceptable to neither democrats nor royalists. The king's power had been curtailed too greatly for the monarch to simply accept his new reality. He couldn't command his armies, sign treaties, issue pardons, draft legislation, dissolve the legislature, or permanently veto legislation. Meanwhile, the existence of a distinction between active and passive citizens ensured substantial resentment from the masses, particularly the increasingly vocal and powerful working class of Paris. As historian Francois Mignet notes, while the people were the source of all powers in the constitution, they exercised none. Thus, from the outset, the constitution pleased nobody and was supported by, well, nobody. Nobody except the Fion Club and the Constitutionalist Centre. But as we've previously discussed, the constitutionalists, unlike the popular left or the royalist right, had very little public support. To paraphrase British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, standing in the middle of the road merely gets you run over twice, and the Constitution of 1791 was smack-bam in the middle of the road. With little support from the left or the right, the Constitution would soon be besieged on both sides. And what this meant was that the revolutionaries were not merely erecting a house with poor foundations but they were attempting to do so in an environment that was both hostile and volatile. A revolutionary storm had engulfed France for the last two years. And when that storm returned, when the people howled and the masses thundered, the Constitution of 1791 would be quickly swept aside. The Constitution's contradictions and its lack of broad public support is reflected in the document's long list of contemporary detractors. A long list of contemporary detractors from across the political spectrum. The Queen, who we of course suspect to be biased, describes the Constitution as a tissue of impractical absurdities. Privately, the King also described the Constitution as a document that was unfeasible, but hoped that the document's failure in practice would lead to later revisions that would strengthen the monarchy. This theme of the constitution being unworkable was articulated by others, not just the royals and their supporters. The radical journalist and Cordelia Club member Camille de Malar condemned the document. To tell the truth, there has been such a confusion of plans, and so many people have worked at it in contrary directions that it is a veritable Tower of Babel. Sitting in the middle of these two ideological camps, the American revolutionary, Governor Morris, reached the same conclusion. On the 30th of September, just two weeks after the king accepted the constitution, 
Morris wrote the following. It is a general and almost universal conviction that this constitution is inexecutable. The makers of it, to a man, condemn it. A few months later, Morris went further. Seeing how the new legislative assembly interacted with the king, Morris wrote on the 27th of December, Every day proves more clearly that their new constitution is good for nothing. We in the 21st century have the benefit of hindsight to know that the Constitution of 1791 failed. But interestingly, there was no shortage of contemporaries who predicted such a result. Considering the document's lack of public support, considering how many people believed the new constitutional regime was unviable, I can't help but wonder if the Constitution's demise was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like historian Adolf Thiers, historian Francois Mignet was convinced that it was this lack of popular support which compromised the Constitution's viability, not insufficient executive power or any other structural flaw. The work of the Constituent Assembly perished less from its defects than from the attacks of faction. Placed between the aristocracy and the multitude, it was attacked by one and invaded by the other. So, having discussed the lack of executive power, and having explored the document's lack of widespread popular support, I do want to touch on a third reason that many historians point to when outlining the Constitution's failure. That third reason relates to the King's ministry. Now, to explain this flaw in the Constitution's design, and I do very much consider it to be a flaw, and you'll see why in the next episode, we need to briefly discuss the American and British systems in order to highlight the issue at hand. In the United States, the executive, aka the president, gets to choose their cabinet. When the president selects their secretary of state or their secretary of defense, they more or less can choose anyone they like. Specifically, the president can choose current and recent members of Congress. If we look at the presidency of Donald Trump, for example, he selected the then Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions to be his first Attorney General, and Mike Pompeo, the current Secretary of State, had been a member of the House of Representatives less than two years prior to his confirmation to the post. While the Executive's Cabinet is not filled with members from the Legislature, it does contain some former members of Congress, and the relationships and experience this gives the Cabinet greatly helps to facilitate alignment and cooperation between the two branches of government. In the British system, the Executive and the Legislature are even more intertwined. The Executive, aka the Prime Minister, gets to be the Executive because he or she can command a majority in the House of Commons. While not always the case, generally, the executive thus commands a majority in the legislature, and the cabinet is comprised of members from that majority. To put this more plainly, let's look at today's British government. The Conservative Party commands a majority in the lower house, and the Prime Minister, as well as every cabinet member, is both a member of the legislature and a member of the Conservative Party. More so than the American system, The British system is built in such a way that it strongly encourages cooperation between the legislative and the executive branches of government. Cooperation is built into the system. In fact, it's required for the system to function effectively. Turning our attention back to the French Constitution of 1791, and one instantaneously observes that it is not designed to encourage the cooperation of the executive and legislative branches. In fact, cooperation between the two branches was actively hindered. Like the American system, the king got to choose his ministers for the royal ministry. However, unlike both the American and British systems, the king was forbidden from choosing individuals who sat in the legislature. Furthermore, not only were deputies forbidden from becoming ministers, but former deputies were forbidden as well. A former deputy had to wait four years before he could join the king's cabinet, 
The result of this ban was that it significantly hindered coordination and cooperation between the legislature and the executive. With the exclusion of deputies from the King's ministry, particularly deputies who had the support of the majority in the Assembly, the interests of the two branches of government were more likely to diverge and conflict than if deputies had been permitted to become ministers. The body that was responsible for making laws, the Assembly, had no responsibility when it came to executing laws, which fell to the King and his ministers. With no deputies being part of the ministry, with no deputies being part of the administration, the Assembly had little inherent incentive to ensure that new laws were, well, practical and enforceable. Furthermore, because ministers were selected by the king, those ministers were, like the king himself, viewed with suspicion. Ministers could not give advice to the assembly. They were merely summoned when necessary to be questioned and interrogated. Ministers could not simply explain their decisions to their peers. They had to defend their decisions to men who suspected their motives and doubted their allegiance. In short, the constitution was designed in such a way that cooperation, coordination, collaboration between the Assembly and the King was actively hindered. Now, I'm conscious that here I am throwing shade at a document with the benefit of hindsight and with no skin in the game, so I will ease up on my criticism just a little. It must be noted that when the National Assembly excluded deputies from the ministry, they did so for a very good reason they were attempting to prevent corruption. What they didn't want was deputies selling out the interests of the nation, because that would make the legislature subordinate to the executive. In short, they were trying to achieve the separation of powers by enforcing a separation of people. And for that reason, the idea, well, it wasn't terrible. In fact, it's reasonable. But the policy of separating powers by separating people did have significant consequences. Consequences which were foreseen by the contemporaries who fought the provision which banned deputies from becoming ministers. Contemporaries who argued, rightly, that such a policy would foster suspicion and deadlock while hindering the good government it sought to protect. It's for this reason that while I'm sympathetic to why the Assembly pursued the policy it did, I just can't give them a get-out-of-jail-free card when it comes to the policy's undesirable ramifications. As a side note, one of the deputies who passionately argued against this provision was none other than Mirabeau. And ironically, despite this provision, we know that Mirabeau entered into secret dealings with the court and was paid by the court. So the deputies failed to prevent corruption, yet succeeded in weakening the viability of the Constitution. The three flaws of the Constitution we have discussed is not an exhaustive list of all the numerous reasons historians point to when justifying the failure of the document, but they do represent considerable schools of thought, and I do think each of them holds merit. The king was granted insufficient power to be, well, the king preventing a genuine balance of power between the branches of government and ensuring that royalists opposed the constitution and worked towards its downfall. Likewise, the document failed to satisfy Democrats and Republicans, with the distinction between active and passive citizens particularly offensive to the ideal of equality. Finally, with the deputies forbidden from becoming ministers, the two branches of the Constitution were given no means to coordinate and cooperate. The legislature and the executive viewed the other with suspicion, and alignment between the two branches of government became considerably and unnecessarily more difficult. The Constitution of 1791 was a historic document, a momentous document, and a flawed document. An ill-constructed vessel to quote the former minister Jacques Necker. Nowhere is this ill-construction more obvious than in the results it produced. For the constitutional monarchy the document created would survive for less than 400 days. Historian Charles Hazen summarises the work of the deputies in a fairly even-handed manner. 
The Constitution of 1791 represented an improvement in French government, yet it did not work well, and it did not last long. As an experiment in the art of self-government, it had its value, but it revealed inexperience and poor judgment in several points, which prepared trouble for the future. The executive and the legislature were so sharply separated that communication between them was difficult and suspicion was consequently easily fostered. The king might not select his ministers from the legislature. He might not, in case of a difference of opinion with the legislature, dissolve the latter, as the English king could do, thus allowing the voters to decide between them. The king's veto was not a weapon strong enough to protect him from the attacks of the assembly, yet it was enough to irritate the assembly if used. The distinction between active and passive citizens was in plain and flagrant defiance of the Declaration of the Rights of Man, and inevitably created a discontented class. The administrative decentralization was so complete that the efficiency of the national government was gone. France was split up into 83 fragments, and the coordination of all these units, their direction towards great national ends in response to the will of the nation as a whole, was rendered extremely difficult, and in certain crises, impossible. The work of reform carried out by the Constituent Assembly was on an enormous scale, immensely more extensive than that of our Federal Convention. We search history in vain for any companion piece. It is unique. Its destructive work proved durable and most important. Much of its constructive work, however, proved very fragile. With the King's acceptance of the new constitution, September 1791 was a month of new beginnings for the French nation. Accompanying this new beginning was a general amnesty and the end of the tricolour terror. In the jubilant atmosphere of the constitution's completion, an amnesty was declared for political prisoners of all stripes, secured by none other than the Marquis de Lafayette. With liberty restored to the Assembly's enemies, and with no significant changes to the laws which had let those enemies flourish in the first place, Republican clubs and papers once again began to operate in broad daylight. Unsurprisingly, it was not long before the Fillon Club's grip on the revolution was tested severely by a regrouped and reinvigorated Republican left. And the Republicans would not only challenge the Constitutionalists, but also the Constitution itself. The tricolour terror wasn't the only thing to end in September, however. Back on the 20th of June, 1789, the fledgling National Assembly had sworn its famous tennis court oath. In the oath, every deputy but one declared that they would not separate until the constitution of the kingdom was established. With the acceptance of the constitution, the deputies of the National Assembly had fulfilled their oath. There was now no longer a reason for the body to continue to exist. And so, like all good things, it came to an end. By the time the National Assembly dissolved on the 30th of September 1791, the deputies of the Assembly had remade the nation of France. Privileges and aristocracy had been relegated to the past. The power of the king had been curtailed. The nation's ancient provinces had been scrapped and replaced, while judicial reforms had ushered in a new era of justice. Controversial religious reforms had overhauled the Catholic Church and its place within society, while the Declaration of the Rights of Man had been declared, and everywhere new traditions sprouted to celebrate the ideas of the revolution. There was, undoubtedly, more work to be done. While much of the old order had been destroyed, only elements of the new order had been built. Historian Annie Besant praises the work of the historic National Assembly. And so it passed away, this National Assembly which gave a constitution to France, this Assembly which is a milestone in the world's history, and the memory of whose work will last as long as man can revere nobleness and admire genius. The Assembly which found the King a despot, and left him the chief magistrate of a liberated people, which found the nobles feudal tyrants, 
and left them simple citizens, which found the peasants slaves and left them men, which found the French a mass of warring classes and left them a united nation, in a word, which found France in fetters and left her free. While I find historian Annie Besson's view on the National Assembly a tad too optimistic, a tad too rosy, there is nonetheless power and truth to her words. The deputies of the National Assembly had achieved something historic, and while I disagree that they left France a united nation, they had certainly transformed her from a despotic feudal kingdom into an enlightened, modern nation comprised of a free people. Historian Louis Madeleine perhaps summarises the work of the National Assembly in a more pragmatic manner, as he foreshadows the darkness that loomed on the horizon. Out of the ruins of the ancient edifice of the monarchy, the Assembly, full of good intentions, generous, patriotic, loving liberty, devoted to the monarchical principle, had raised another so unsteady that destruction threatened it from the first day of its existence, and it was inevitably doomed to crush both liberty and monarchy in its fall. Thank you for listening to episode 23, The Constitution of 1791. In this week's episode extras, we'll be diving into historian Henry Adams' interesting framework, which he uses to evaluate the Constitution. Differing from many historians, Adams rejects the idea that the Constitution can simply be evaluated by focusing on the King, and presents an alternative framework which makes for an interesting discussion. In the second episode extra, we'll be examining an account of the King's acceptance of the Constitution. Next episode, we'll be discussing the new Legislative Assembly, which replaces the now-dissolved National Constituent Assembly. The composition of this body puts it on a collision course with both the King and Europe. Determined to make war on the revolution's internal enemies, the new assembly will find itself at war with external ones as well. Now, if you're a fan of grey history and you're keen for some more grey history, then there are two things that you can do to help make that happen. Firstly, tell people about the show. And secondly, if you think today's show was worth a dollar, you can become a Patreon supporter and simultaneously get access to the episode extras and other bonus content as well. Any and all support is greatly appreciated, and there is a link in the show notes as well as on the website. As always, thank you for listening, stay safe, and have a great day.